This is Sports Cutting Edge for ASTN, the Australian Sports Technologies Network. Here's your host, Lockie Wills. Hello and welcome to Sports Cutting Edge, your home of sports tech, sports performance, innovation, from the elite through to grassroots. We'll look at sports business, media, marketing, sports psychology, and the power of sport in the community. We'll give you all the latest news and insights and speak to the people who make it happen, whether it be on the field, in the coach's box, in the boardroom, or in the back room, those doing the hard yards behind the scenes. And of course, our tech geniuses who are changing the face of sport. We are here all thanks to the Australian Sports Technologies Network, powering sport through innovation. And they've helped build a billion-dollar sports tech and sports innovation industry now in Australia. And you can check them out at astn.com.au. Today, we kick off with a blockbuster show. Our guests include the super coach of Olympic swimming, Michael Bowles. It rained gold in Tokyo for the Aussies, and Michael Bowl will give us the inside story of how the Aussie swimmers became our best ever in Olympic history. Michael coaches Emma McKeon, now Australia's most successful ever Olympian. We'll get the story of how Emma became an immortal in Tokyo. Michael coached Steph Rice, who took the world by storm in Beijing. We'll hear about Steph's iron will. And now he coaches Cody Simpson, and we'll get the inside word on Cody's drive towards Paris 2024. Also on the show, Nathan Rothschild. Now he's a mathematics genius, a tech genius, a sports fan, who started a company called Genius, and now he's dominating the world. They're an Aussie startup, they're now called GTG Network, and they are the world leader in sports tech fan engagement. They're with the NFL, in the NBA, and they're dominating the scene in the UK, Europe, and Asia Pacific. Nathan Rothschild will tell us how they did it. As well as that, we'll cross to New York City and catch up with our US correspondent, Karma Armani. She'll tell us the latest news in global sports tech. And we'll be joined by a rising star of Australian media, Hayley McAdam from 3KND Indigenous Radio. Hayley Mack is going to be a regular on the show and we'll talk about sport and culture. But up first on the show, for the latest on the Aussie sports tech state of play, we'll be joined by the pioneer of Australian sports tech, the founder, chairman and CEO of ASTN, James Demetriou. And he's up next. Uh, it's my great honour to welcome to the show now the pioneer of Australian sports tech. He is the founder, the chairman, the CEO of Australian Sports Technologies Network, James Dimitriou. Welcome to the show, James. Uh, it's good to be here, Lockie. Uh, it's great to have you on. Now, uh, we've got a lot to discuss. There is so much happening in the industry in this country. But before that, I want to chat just a little bit about yourself and, and your story and, and what drives you. Um, 
Now, growing up in Pasco Vale, playing cricket, playing footy, and then a very special day on the 5th of April, Saturday the 5th of April 1975, you put on the Essendon jumper, taking on St Kilda at Windy Hill in front of 20,000 raving Essendon supporters. Uh, you had a big win that day, 69 points. But to make your debut as a league footballer, a dream come true. You got 16 touches, I see. And then things were coming along beautifully. The following year, injury cruelly cut down your career. It was, I mean, something that these days you'd think is unthinkable. Uh, you know, there was a sprinkler sticking up on Waverley Park. You fall over, you break your leg. And But the way you were able to turn that sort of adversity around and spend the next 30 or 40 years carving out the most magnificent career, a lawyer out of Melbourne University, and then in the corporate sector, the philanthropic sector, you've achieved so much. Um, James, what drives you? Um, uh, probably the most important thing that, um, which are the values that my mum and dad sort of gave to us is that, you know, you need to give back. It's about, you know, um, they have a great appreciation of Australia and what it, how it helped them and helped us. And so the, I know my mum always used to talk about, you know, it's very important to get educated, but also for you to give back and, um, you know, provide assistance to people. I mean, that was just driven into our DNA. Mm. And if you look at the whole family, they've sort of been driven by that. Um, so I think our values were driven around respect for institutions, respect for people, being able to give back and to also uh, fix wrongs. Mm. Our parents were really big on if there's something that's glaringly not going well or people are really doing the wrong thing, you really should step up. And so uh, after I've you know finished my career in you know football, and then went on to the board at the Essendon Football Club, you know, for a couple of years. That was about fixing up a whole bunch of governance issues they had. Mm. And then um, I sort of got out of the football scene for a while and then just ploughed into my technology background and and being in company startup land. But in 2006, I got approached by the Victorian government because I knew George Lukakis very well at the Victorian Multicultural Commission. Mm. And he said to me, James, we've got all these newly arrived Australians who are not uh, involved in sport. And I'm thinking, well, that was the problems we had in the 60s and 70s. I mean, mm -hmm. I was fortunate because my brothers and I were really good at our cricket and football and, and a bit of tennis. Mm. Um, but, you know, um, when I heard that there was – and we had, but we had a lot of people fall through the cracks and never, ever mm -hmm. played sport. To hear it in 2006 was a shock because I'm thinking, you know, 30 years later, we've still got this issue where mm. it's, it's you know, sport is a privilege, not a right of Australian children now. So that's what got me into sports. Our boys, so I'm going to fix this. And so, you know, we got all these scholarships for these kids, equipment, paid their fees, uh, fat, tens of thousands of kids. And we also got their parents involved in the clubs themselves as volunteers. So mm. we used to call that the SITS program, Social Inclusion Through Sport. So Beautiful. that was fixing a problem mm. to ensure that there's a legacy for kids, you know, to be able to enjoy one of the great things about Australia. You know, the because we're geographically, we're outdoors, we've got all these great sporting facilities and room, et cetera. I just, I just couldn't stomach it. So we did that for 10 years. Um, we were ahead of our time because everyone talks about racism now and, you know, inclusion now. So, by God, we were doing that in 2006. Mm. And we did it so well. And so when I hear people talk about racism and everything else, I think, well, 
you're you're about 15 years too late. Mm-hmm. And that includes all the big institutions, etc. So that was an example of where back. And then with the sports tech, it was a very similar story. I sort of started doing a bit of consulting with some of the sports tech companies and realised that this sector is fragmented. There's no leadership. There's no advocacy. There's no pathway for companies. So I thought, well, here you go. We go into it again. You know, we go and do a, another Mount Everest. You know, we start <laughs> climbing that. And that's how. So that's what's the drive for us. And um, plus, I think as migrant kids, you know, because you're, you know, it's it, it wasn't easy. I mean, we get, you know, you either as a migrant kid get crushed by mm-hmm. the insults and the, the racism and the other bits and pieces that were delivered to us by people, you know, at school or whatever. Yeah. You either take it on board and you just don't fight back or you fight back. And so we said this wasn't right. And we just, so I think we, we like to wrong, right wrongs, if you like. Yeah, bloody oath. It's magnificent. People like you, big vision and big heart. It's, it's the key. Hey, speaking of which, big vision, sports tech, you know, where are we headed? You've been at this for about a decade and you've grown and helped to grow and foster a billion dollar industry. Where are we going next? Uh, well, what we're doing next, um, you know, after building it from 250 million and two and a half thousand jobs in 212 to now end of 221.2 billion and about 15,000 jobs, our our job now is to get another 2,000 jobs into it, into Australia, into Victoria, and probably another three or four thousand across Australia. And then the other thing is to generate help help and facilitate the industry because it we're here as advocates advocacy we're here to sort of facilitate grease the wheels and ensure that we can help our industry is to try and get to two billion maybe by i reckon 2025 26 we might go close if not it'll be 2030 for sure Mm. and then of course we're leading up to the 2032 olympics and that is you know if you look at our 11 year goal that's what it will be is you know what do we leave as a legacy leading up and leading after the Olympics with our industry on the Australian population and also how our people will be able to affect people globally. So so it's very important that we sort of are there to be able to drive that agenda over the next uh, 10 to 11 years. We've got some very good staff, very good board now. Um, we've got the uh, hub now based in Melbourne, in, in, in Richmond and Cremorne, as part of the Victorian government's digital hub. But as the Victorian government people have told us on many occasions, and they're big, and when you look at it, the Victorian government has really sunk close to, with this grant, $9 million to back the industry. Yeah. And we've delivered probably for the government another four to five hundred million of generated revenue for the Victorian, and then put another probably five to six thousand jobs into Victoria. So our job now is to, we've got a node going into Queensland, so we're now working heavily with Queensland, and we've won a, uh, actually, last week, we won a contract with the Queensland government in what they call their Active Kit Program, which is effectively our pre-accelerator program that we've done in Victoria, putting it into Queensland, and we, I've just got the numbers this morning, and so we've, uh, a bit, uh, uh, Martin was, Martin Schlegel, who has been our you know, program manager, has just told me so so far we got 16 into this cohort in victoria and they're coming from germany three from germany yeah. and western australia and new south wales and the queensland one has just picked up 15 candidates and so that's that's going to start rolling very soon so 
Um, Queensland is going to become a very big focus for us over the next um, oh, 10 years. Mm. And then we'll build the eastern seaboard and, and, you know, and WA New Zealand over the next few years. Uh, but Queensland, big base, got 80, 80 companies up there we're working with, working very closely with the, you know, the Queensland government. One of our board members has worked very closely with the 2032 bid as well. Mm. And in the background, he's working very closely with, you know, a number of our people up there that we know to assist them building an important sports tech legacy mm. for the state and for the country, you know, going forward. And James, with regards to what you're doing, the Australian Sports Innovation Centre of Excellence in Cremorne, um, off the back of uh, you know some wonderful funding from the Victorian government, can you tell us what you'll be doing there? Well, for a number of years, we've really wanted to have some sort of a physical hub yeah. that would be a one-stop shop for our industry. So, but with the with the objective that we would create out of there um, the next generation of um, knowledge. Mm and working much more closely with universities and researchers to create more new knowledge, new knowledge. And then out of that, to be able to develop some more new programs and education to make our industry better than what it is, because you need to sort of follow that pathway. And then out of that, you're going to hope that we're going to have a whole generation of new products. So really that facility will allow us to to do all of that and our programs are really going to be everything from startup mentoring scale up mentoring co-working space increasing our export and trade from our through our programs um, collaboration meetup space also a place where in, uh, international companies and investors can have a landing pad to be with us uh, uh, knowledge through a sports directory, increasing that, uh, knowledge through industry research and sector reporting, which we've never had the time to really do much, mm. global advocacy, uh, training and certifications and working with our universities and also the TAFE College that is is at Cremorne, which is Kangan Institute, and across smart apparel and footwear, motorsports, you know, and all of those sort of areas and their strong digital background. Um and also look at future industries, you know, that, that we might be able to develop using a living laboratory, which we're going to have there as well. Okay. And then talking about what new research we can develop from there. So overall, this is the next big frontier for us to be able to have a centre that will create all these new stuff. Because what we really need to do by 2032, we need to be have developed a whole lot of new knowledge, new programs, and then a whole lot of really great Australian companies with new products. Now, that's in startup land, but also we've got a lot of really, um, we've got some really fast emerging companies now that are coming in that mm. have sort of got to 5 million. We want them to go from 5 to 25, those at 10 to go to 50, and those at sort of 25 to go to 100 mil. We need to also support those up and coming, you know, Goliaths by, you know, getting them to sort of work with or collaborate with startups as well. Hey, you're a big vision person. I want to ask you, you know, with the nature of economics, obviously, uh, you know, Australia continuing to move away from the original, you know, the manufacturing base. Obviously, we're transitioning away from fossil fuels. How big do you see sports tech as a driver for our economy? Yes, to 2032, but beyond and deep into this century. So I think it's very important that people realise that sports tech is really an intersection between 
you know, the information communication technology industry, the defence industry, the aged care industry, the health industry. So we intersect with a lot of other industries. And I suppose what it is to us is the impact of technology on the business of sport. Yeah. Yeah. So if you look at our taxonomy, you know, a, a classification way of looking at it, we're all driven by social, cultural, environmental, governance and um, uh, geographic things that drive every economy. They're the sort of, if you like, the top line things that we're doing. Underneath that, you've got all this new technical applications coming in, blockchain, AI, cyber, data integrity, VR, AR, 5G, all of these things are now sort of as the new technologies, and mm. then how are they going to be applied down into the business of sport? So you're going to be looking at integration. How do all these things integrate? I mean, we now know that in the health system, there's 90 to 135 different platforms within health industries. Yeah. How do you integrate all that? Yeah. You know, how do you automate all this? How do you, and there's also globalization that, you know, fans now for a, a sport now all over the world, like, you know, Barcelona or Man yeah. City or, you know, Liverpool, my team. Um, there's the professionalization. We're getting some really high quality startups now who are yeah. academic backgrounds, strong research background with deep technology. Uh, and then and then across that, you've got all these issues now facing us, you know, betting, corruption, um, environmental, social governance we need to be very aware of now going forward. Mm. And then you've got to then apply all of that to the nine verticals of sports tech, you know, which is media, broadcast, entertainment, um, stadiums, venues, uh, brand sponsorships, smart apparel, footwear, ticketing, fans, membership, esports, gaming, wearables, fitness, wellness, and health, all of that. So I've read many reports, but the best one is Sports Techie out of the, mag the magazine, online magazine out of the United States. In yeah. 2012, they were saying that the, the sports tech industry or the technology in the business of sport was 200 billion then. Sheesh. Now, if you throw in what China's been doing, because China's now spending 2.5% of its GDP, like America, on sport, you throw in another two to 300 billion in, the U in China over the next mm -hmm. five years and everything else, you've got a big industry. It certainly is. And um, look, James, uh, thank you so much for your time and your insight. Uh, I can't wait to hear more from yourself and your team at ASTN on the show. Uh, James Demetrio, thank you very much for your time. All right, let's cross now to New York City and catch up with our US correspondent, Karma Armani. Welcome to the show, Karma. Hi, Lucky. How are you? Oh, well, look, I'm just absolutely wrapped to have you on board. You are a rising star of sports tech uh, across the UK, Brazil, the Netherlands, and now you're in America. Uh, you've worked with everyone from Arsenal, European lacrosse, uh, the Bangladesh women's cricket team. Your experience is, is magnificent, and um, I know you're, you're a Master's of Business out of Ohio University. You're now doing a Master's of Sports Administration. 
so you've got all the qualifications and actually we'll, we'll get a little bit about you uh, because your your background your whole story of how you've come into sport is fantastic but can i just ask i've got a list here in front of me how many languages do you speak because the list here says english french italian spanish arabic and portuguese that's six languages that's amazing <laughs> So, well, wow, thank you. <laughs> You've done your research. Um, well, I grew up with four languages because my parents are, my, my dad is Italian, my mom is Lebanese, and in Lebanon we speak already English, French, and Arabic. And then my dad brought in the Italian. So those don't really count. I just grew up with them. I'm very lucky. But the only ones that I actually learned were Spanish in high school, which now is a little bit uh, rusty. Um, because I added Portuguese to it and I'm very confused. I don't speak Portuguese and Spanish. I speak Portuñol. So <laughs> I just mix them up all the time. It, it's an affair. Oh. It's an affair. It's magnificent. Six languages. I'm still learning English, so uh, that is incredible. Um, so I, I want to talk about. You alluded to it. Um, can you tell us the, the the story of how you got into sport? I know you know you're a young girl growing up in Lebanon. You got to age fifteen, and what did you decide? Well, age fifteen, I got a bit of a health problem, and I ended up having to miss a lot of my schooling. I was at home. And I was reading this book that was the biomechanics of sport. I had asked for it for a really long time. I have no idea why. I can't remember the reason. <laughs> uh, but I was reading that and I was just fascinated. I was like, wow, there's an industry called sports. Like, I love doing sports. I, I did, like, I was a ballet dancer for 10 years. I tried a lot of things. My father was very into sports. And so I was like, okay, let's do it. I have three years in front of me uh, to finish school. I'm already behind. I just need to do it and get there and see if I like it. So in the end, I just uh, chose to go to University in Amsterdam. I ended up there and I realized, oh my God, this is huge. I have no clue what I'm doing. I need to get as much experience <laughs> as possible because I don't know where, I don't know the industry. I didn't yeah. have anybody around me that could tell me what was going on there in Lebanon itself. We don't really have that much of an industry now there's a lot mm. more to it but back then there was almost nothing so from then on that's how i ended up in all these different countries and experiences it was just my curiosity and wanting to know more about what was out there and what was in front of me that's incredible and i love it the, you know and that opportunity born of a, a situation where you know you know uh, some misfortune in your life but you were able to turn that around into a dream and you've gone and lived the dream you had the courage to pack your bags travel the world i think it's amazing and you're all about what what this industry is because sports tech it really is it's it's about the future and people like you are the ones that are driving that future so all power to you i know in particular you've got a great interest when it comes to athlete health um, and also women in sport uh, you've done some amazing stuff as well with the uh, Born to be Mild sports fundraiser, uh, raising money for Lebanese athletes. So you've got that great love for your, you know, people back home in Lebanon trying to help and, and create a great sports environment there. You're in America doing great things. So it's an honor to have you on the show. Um, and Karma, there's some big stories happening there in the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah, so thank you for having me, uh, of course. And I just wanted to put this on your radar. 
So yesterday, La Liga officially launched their subsidiary, which is La Liga Tech. And what they try to do with it is try to put everything you need uh, to improve about your technology in one space, in one solution. So they, they have like three main buckets for that solution, and that's into fan engagement, they have a content enhancement and competition management. So think about like creating campaigns for fan engagement, creating your own OTT platform or leveraging real time data for your broadcast, protecting your brand online, which is a big thing. You don't want people pirating your content. What else? They also have trying to improve your management process into your competition. So really this huge managing tool for everything that's content related, fan connection, um, and also internally how you you manage your teams uh, all in one solution. So I don't know how it looks like exactly. We still have a lot to discover about it, but they have two clients already, which is the World Paddle tour which has gained a lot of traction lately if you just and this has been amazing for their pr as well because now if you go on the news tab for google and you see world paddle tour everywhere <laughs> connected to la liga tech um but they also have millicom uh, which is a communications company in football that is in luxembourg right now so these two will really benefit from the pr effect of this story and it's fascinating because La Liga had already, they've done a lot of different deals in sports tech already. Last week they had their uh, deal with Dapper Labs, the NFT creator company. They really created their own little niche in sports. I'm sure you know that. Um, and it's interesting because you have all of these, they want to have their own tech subsidiary. They have their own tech uh, stuff going on, but they also try to leverage their partners and how they can also build this subsidiary further with their partners and going back to the dapper labs i think you'll like this um there's the nfl that had a that announced a deal with them finally they got there to it um they've told their their teams their leagues to hold off on any sponsorship related to nfts or blockchain so they could have this deal going on at least that's the story so far um mm. And it came to the same kind of deal as NBA Top Shop, so they didn't really venture outside as and the NFL brand is really. They really wanted to talk to other leagues, uh, make sure that they had a solid product. So it's very much like the NBA Top Shop uh, agreement. Um, the NFL and the NFLPA will have both will have an equity stake into Dapper Labs. Uh, there's not that much information on how it will go there. I think they're still uh, trying to see what kind of products are going to be like, but we can very much expect the same thing as NBA Top Shops. It's going to launch at the end of the season. Um, and although you've, I don't know if you've seen, but Top Shop sales have uh, dramatically decreased lately in the last 30 days, I think they said. So it's interesting to see, okay, we've had the NFT craze. Are we going through with it? It's now it's settling down uh, there's a lot less users but the wnba top shot did really well so i think sports execs still believe that there's a value in nft value in digital collectibles and they'll probably do very well by the end of this of the season when it launches that's just a, a wonderful summary that you've given um and so for, for people listening i mean these as you say these digital collectibles so it's a bit like the old school days where you know when i was a kid i used to go to the news agency right go to the store and you buy a packet of playing cards like sports cards with uh, australian footballers on there or cricket players 
So this is the modern day equivalent. It's a far more sophisticated thing than just going and getting little cardboard pieces of paper. Um, so what sort of things could be, uh, you know, captured in these NFTs, do you think, Karma? So when, you come, when it comes to NFTs, you think like, oh, the endless opportunities, everything is digital, so you can take any piece of content. Um, and you've seen that with players and athletes, especially in the US. Um, where they create their own NFTs, their own pieces of content that you can find anywhere really online, or they can create themselves and you try to give value to it with like perceived value from the fans. So it can be a highlight reel, can be um, a piece of art uh, or graphic from um, a WNBA player. It can be anything that the athlete creates in terms of um, I don't know, their, their training, their uh, point system, anything video related. So it's really how you create the perceived value more than what content you put out. If fans will see the value in it, they will buy it. So it's your marketing strategy and how you try to put it out there and make people think like, I want to own this. Fascinating. Karma, thanks so much. What a wrap. Perfect stuff. Huge news out of the NFL and La Liga. Karma Armani, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Uh, wonderful stuff. Up next, the Olympic super coach, Michael Ball. You're listening to Sports Cutting Edge. For ASTN, the Australian Sports Technologies Network. Uh, it's my great honour now to welcome the super coach of Olympic swimming. They call him Super Bowl. He is the Bill Belichick of the pool. Michael Bowl has been at this for 33 years. Five successive Olympic Games he's coached at. Uh, extraordinary performance. The gold rush had started in Beijing. Steph Rice, three times gold. And most recently, Emma McKeon, who in Tokyo became our most successful ever swimmer. Michael Bowl, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Lockie. Happy to be here. Mate, it's, it's a, a great honour to have you on. Can I ask, you know, when you look at what you've achieved, do you ever get a moment, I know you're already back in training, you've just stepped away from the pool to join us on the show, and I appreciate that. Do you, do you ever get a chance maybe when you're sitting in the car, driving to work, and get to actually just sit for a moment and reflect on what you've done and think, gee whiz, it's actually pretty cool? I think you do that for a moment, but then I think if you're going to be successful at the next one, you've always got one eye on the future. So, uh, you know, even as we were getting to the end of Tokyo, I was thinking about, you know, Paris and who from our group is going to be there in Paris and, you know, who do I think within our ranks that we've currently got and maybe swimmers that are coming in, can we try and keep, you know, the relay baton pass on to the next group of people? So, uh you know, one eye on the present, but the other eye certainly on the future. Isn't that amazing? And, and is that the key to success, having that mental discipline? You know, in terms of, you hear people talk about, you know, in, in footy, uh, AFL or NRL, having a premiership hangover. You know, you have the ultimate success, you climb the mountain, but then you have the hangover after it. Is that how you've been able to keep it so finely tuned that you, you only allow that small amount of space in your mind for, for that celebration, but then it is into the, the next? I think you've got to, like, it's a very slippery precipice. I think, um, you know, having people performing at the Olympic Games, like, you, know, you see so many examples in the past of people who have done well from one Olympics and they don't back it up. Um, and, you know, as a coach, I guess you're always on tender hooks. You know, you've got to make sure. And, you know, we can't be 
working at 10 out of 10 with the kids who are at the Olympics at the moment, but there's other kids that just miss the team that, that need to be in there clawing their way closer and closer to getting on that team in a couple of years once the Paris team's picked. So I think, you know, you've got to have a different mindset or a different philosophy for the athletes that you've got in your program. I think the older ones that have been to a couple of Olympics, it's a mistake to get them back in too quickly, but the ones who just missed um, are probably a little bit disappointed about missing. And, um, you know, those that are going to be successful in Paris are on the road there now. They're not going to wait till six months before to do something about it. They've got to get themselves going right now. And so, Michael, I mean, your career in and of itself is a fascinating study, uh, you know, transitioning from being a swimmer to a coach. I mean, and your history is fantastic. I mean, I know that you and Emma McKeon's mum, Susie, were on the 1982 Australian Com Games team together. You and her dad, Ron, used to swim together. Uh, he was the best man at your wedding. So there's a lot of history there. But can you take us through your journey from being a swimmer to being a coach? Yeah, I started swimming very young, I suppose, and uh, showed pretty good promise through the age groups, winning a lot of national age group championships through all strokes, except freestyle, actually, fly back. Breast. I think the best I ever got was second in freestyle, but won medley national championships as well. Won quite a few open championships, as you said, made the Commonwealth Games in 82, made my first team in 79, and my last team, Australian, in 1985. But unfortunately, never ever got to represent Australia. 1980 wasn't a great trials for me. Uh, there was the boycott in 1980, and the team selected was probably 17 or 16 swimmers. It was very small. I got a second position at those trials, uh, but non, non-selection. And then 84, I was ranked first in three events, um, 200 and 400 medley in the 200 backstroke, but uh, 1984 swam terribly at the trials. I think I got thirds and fourths, didn't make the team. I had a horrendous trials. So I think that's one of the drivers for me, I think, was just that non-performance by myself at those Olympic trials. And um, I think that was one of the, the things that probably, you know, made me or helped me uh, try and achieve that Olympic success by the athletes <laughs> by myself. <laughs> so I think that's, I've, uh, you know, got a bit of, as they say, poo on the liver. Um, you know, I, uh, you know, luckily enough, um, you know, through the swimmers that you've had, was able to have sort of, swimmers on teams in 92 sort of right the way through to current day but got into coaching via a lady called Cheryl Humphreys actually she was an Australian representative swimmer her and her husband Alan at the time had the lease of the University of Queensland pool at St Lucia and Cheryl was transitioning kind of out of coaching she still loved coaching but she had a inkling for art she's an artist mm. and she still dabbled in coaching she's still a very very good coach within her own right but she called me up and, and I was three quarters of the way through a physical education degree. So I had planned on finishing that off. And Cheryl called up out of the blue and said, look, um, I just don't feel like coaching at the moment. Can you come down to the pool? I think you'd make a very good coach. And I said, look, Cheryl, I'm not interested at all in coaching. I just want to finish off this phys ed degree and, and get it behind me. And, uh, you know, she, she was very insistent. Luckily, she was. Yeah. And she got me down to the pool. And I guess, you know, you just form that really quick bond and relationship with the swimmers that were in the pool there at the University of Queensland. Um, and I guess I just got hooked in and, and really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, 12 months down the track, I had 
a swimmer from the group Warwick Mortensen narrowly missed the 88 Olympic team for Seoul. He placed fourth and fifth, I beg your pardon, in the 100 free. And back in those years, they only took the top four. Duncan Armstrong in the 100 free was fourth and Warwick was fifth. Um, if Warwick would have been swimming nowadays, he would have been picked because they normally take right. 600 freestylers, but Warwick missed it. And uh, I guess I got the bug and, and uh, just started coaching from there. And um, I never, ever finished off that physical education degree, but <laughs> I just carried on swimming since, swimming coaching since. You certainly have in fine style, the best you could imagine. Um, just back to what you said about the fact that perhaps there was that burning desire that didn't quite get fulfilled as a swimmer itself. And it's funny, if you look at some of the great coaches, for example, in AFL, the two best in modern history, Kevin Sheedy, famous for being a back pocket plumber, Alistair Clarkson, who as a coach, you know, one of the greatest success stories of all time as a player, it wasn't quite that way. Yeah. Do you think that that has actually helped you? Is it, is it a way that you form an, uh, that connection with the athlete? Because you know what the brutal agony of it's about, so you're able to to tap in. Is there something in that? Do you reckon? I think there is. Like all the all the successful people I've coached in swimming that tried to go on to coach, never ever really made it because I think mm. they were so good, they didn't understand the battle you had to have to get better. And most people are are probably average to a little bit better than average and they've got a craft away and that there's a lot of hardship and knockbacks that they experience along the way. And I think a lot of the really good swimmers, a lot of swimming well comes naturally for a lot of the really good ones and they don't understand mm. the struggle perhaps quite as much. That's a very generalised statement, but, you know, quite often not, you know, you look at Dean Boxall, who's doing a very good job at the moment, you know, Dean by his own admission didn't quite make it. He made Australian junior teams but never got on to Australian senior teams. He gave up when he was about 18 or 19 years of age. And I think he's another one of those. He'll tell you the same thing, that, you know, he didn't make it. And that's the thing that, that drives him. He wants to get that success and he gets it via his athletes. I think there's a little bit there in, in uh, that as me as well. How special, uh, you look at the 2008 Olympic Games, uh, where it all came to fruition. Uh, Steph Rice, you know, took the world by storm. How special was it for you? I think you'd been coaching Steph for about four or five years. So you had that journey, you know, you'd been with her day in, day out, early morning after early morning to see her achieve such success. How special was it for her? But how special was it for you being able to, to get that sort of, you know, three gold in an Olympic Games? Extraordinary. Well, you know, Stephanie was just an outstanding individual. It was just a pleasure to coach her. Very, very focused, very hardworking girl. And, uh, you know, right from the moment she started training with us, you could see she just had that quality. You know, she was able to lift. You know, she's one of those athletes, the bigger the stage, the better she was. When she used to mm. compete at the local meets and, you know, the Brisbane Championships and those sorts of meets, I'd have to walk into the toilets when she was swimming because she just wouldn't. You wouldn't commit to the race. She'd just win it and wouldn't put herself out there. But, you know, when she got to state, she'd, she'd be better. When she got to national, she was outstanding. But internationally, when she knew she had to perform, she was just at, at her absolute best. Um, and I think, you know, being able to be part of her story, I suppose, um, you know, it was just a great experience, you know, being over there in Beijing. But not only in Beijing, I think before Beijing at the trial, she broke both those world records at our trials three months before and um, you know she certainly put herself in the in the picture there as as you know one of the contenders for Beijing by those swims 
Um, she had a great battle with a number of athletes over there in Beijing, Kirsty Coventry from Zimbabwe, who mm. trained over in Texas for all of her collegiate career, was one of her fiercest competitors. And obviously Katie Hoff, who was the world record holder, she broke one of Stephanie's world records from the trials. We knew she was going to be very tough as well. But to see Steph on the biggest stage, uh, you know, line up, and it's very hard to win an Olympic gold medal, but it's even harder to win and break a world record. And and she, she won three races, and they were all in world record time, two of them individually, but one as a member of the 800 freestyle relay. So it was just great to be part of that story. And, you know, 2007, the year before, um, you know, when you look back at history and think Katie Hoff beat her at that meet in Melbourne by around about 10 seconds in the 400 medley, it's just unbelievable to think in the space of 12 months she was able to go from 10 seconds behind Katie to actually beating her and breaking a world record at the meet. It's just testament, I think, to Stephanie's ability to, to chase a goal and, and actually attain it. That's fascinating. That 10-second differential, um, how do you claw each second back? In terms of the training regime that you had leading into Beijing, can you give us a bit of insight into how it was done? As you say, Steph, with that iron will. But in terms of the technical aspect, how were you doing it? Well, I think when I look back at the Melbourne World Championships in 2007, I've got to be honest, and Stephanie's admitted this, that she wasn't convinced the foreigner medley was one of her events until mm. Melbourne. And in the race, she was just in there. She was sitting in about third or fourth position all the way through. And then in the last 100 metres, she got a sniff of a medal and all of a sudden she just erupted and came home with an awesome last 50 to get a hand on the wall for a medal. And I think when she saw herself get a medal, by her own admission, she'd only semi-prepared for the 400 medley in the past. She didn't 100% believe that was an event that she could medal the following year in Beijing in. But when she stood on the podium there in Melbourne, I think the light was switched on in her mind. And I think with Steph, when she convinced herself that she was a chance of doing something, like you just had to really step back and, and just watch her go. So it was really looking at, at Katie and looking at her and seeing where Katie's strengths were. And Katie was an outstanding breaststroker and freestyler. And Stephanie's probably best two legs were the fly in the back. So we knew that if we could get Stephanie in front through that fly and backstroke leg and try and hold off Katie in the breaststroke and then hold her off obviously in the freestyle, that she was a chance of doing something in that 400 medley. And, you know, it was, it was a, it was a little bit of a surprise at the trials in 2008 when Steph broke the world record. Uh, but once she broke that world record in the 400 medley, I think that was another, another level of belief that Steph had in herself. You know, she, she really wasn't expecting to break that world record on the 400 medley at trials. But when that happened, I think I and myself, I, I knew that she was going to be a, a, a real threat to Katie in that 400 medley when, uh, you know, when the Beijing Olympics came around. Fascinating. And what I'm getting from you with all these different stories is the role that that self-belief does play. Is that the key? You know, for all the physical, but when it comes to the very finite of the elite on the world stage, is that the one thing? I think it's one of the really big things. I think if I had to rank them, I think that's the number one thing. Like John Sieben, um, I used to train with Jono uh, in 84 before he won. You know, we were all training with Laurie and I used to pick Jono up every day during the school holidays in my car because his mum and dad were working and you know, Jono would rock up in the front seat. He'd have a dollar's worth of mixed lollies and 
He needs his way through those on the way through. But Jono is one of the most confident people I think I've ever met. His level of self-belief, he's only a short guy. He's about the same height as me, five foot nine, whatever that is in centimetres, 176 centimetres. And he was up against some of the biggest athletes you've ever seen in your life. You know, Michael Gross from West Germany was the world record holder at the time. He was like six foot six or six feet seven. Jono wasn't ranked inside the top 10, but Jono 100% at 17 years of age in the lead up to LA just believed like we were all having a bit of a giggle that, you know, we couldn't believe how Jono was so confident he was going to do well over there because he was ranked so far back. Hmm. And I was watching the Olympics from home. And to be totally honest, I, I could not believe that Jono won that race. You know, he was fifth or sixth at the 150 metre mark to come home in one of the fastest last 50 splits ever. Like, you know, his level of self-belief is, is just on another level. And I think if you look at Jono, he, no offence to Jono, but he doesn't look like a supreme athlete. But you cannot win that gold medal at the Olympic Games if you're not a great athlete. But Jono... His athleticism is, is is good, but not great. But his level of self-belief is is sort of second to none. So I think, you know, when you look at people that have been super successful, Duncan Armstrong's another one, supremely confident and believing that the hard work they did was going to be the thing that separated them from the rest of the field at a meet like the Olympic Games. And I think, you know, having been a part of pre- helping prepare Stephanie to get there, you know, she was prepared to do absolutely anything. I can still remember... You know, one or two months before, we did a little bit of a medicine ball routine after training. Like we do a dry land circuit before training that lasted about 20 to 30 minutes. We train six kilometres and she'd get towards the end of the session and she'd say, Bailey, can you do a little bit of extra med ball with me at the end? 15 or 20 minutes. And I'd say, yeah, no problem at all. And, you know, we'd be going 15 or 20 minutes. And the next thing I looked at my watch, it's an hour. And she's still wanting to go. And I'd say, Steph, that's enough. You know what I mean? They they were prepared to do the things that other people weren't prepared to do. And I think you can take it to an extreme that takes you over the edge. And I think that's the role of a coach is to know, okay, Steph, that's enough. Like she wanted to keep going and do more. But I think, you know, you've got to have, whether it's the common sense or whether it's the the gut feel to know when enough's enough. Um, So I think with the really good ones, they're prepared to do things that others aren't prepared to do. A lot of the others are prepared to talk about doing it, but the really good ones that do it actually do. Fascinating. That's, and that's such a, a beautiful insight into into the athlete who can get it done when it matters most. Steph Rice, um, extraordinary performance in Beijing. Um, Steph's been in the media recently and, and really been courageous talking about you know, the struggles that she's had since that time. Um, can I ask you, and, and actually another Another a person who's been very courageous, uh, MC Bomb, who's come out since Tokyo, and she had just such a wonderful time. I think the whole of Australia was really just barracking for MC Bomb. She was a, a real heart and soul story of the games. And she spoke about the last few years, uh, she had some struggles in terms of, uh, you know, eating and, and, and um, in terms of her, you know, uh, body, uh, you know, and, and some real demons on the inside. Uh, and one of the things in that article in The Australian that is credited with helping her get back on the right track was when she came across to yourself in 2019. How much as a coach, you're not only uh, coaching and nurturing the athlete, but you're also nurturing the human being. Can you tell us that dimension of it? 
Well, I think that's probably the most important dimension of it. Like, I think, you know, you're trying to make influence or you're trying to gain influence and make a difference with the people that you're coaching. And I think you've got to contact, you've got to try and make contact with them, whether it's a spiritual level or they've got to feel that you care for them as a person first and as an athlete second. So, you know, both those girls that you mentioned are, you know, you know, they're very important people to me. I think I've still got very good relationships with uh, both of them. Um, and I kind of like the fact, whether it's a male or a female, you're having that relationship after they finish swimming is really important to me. And I think most of the athletes, like 99.9%, I feel I've got still a very good relationship with those people. So it's something that I probably go out of my way to do to try and, you know, make that, that, that contact with them. You know, you've got to try and unlock uh, the key to what that person is. Um, you've got to find out what motivates them, what drives them, why are they doing this? And I think if you can, if you can get that contact with them, if you can get that relationship with them, they'll do anything for you. You know, they'll work hard. They'll do above and beyond what you're asking them to do. If they've got that trust in you as a, as a coach and mentor. So it's something that I try and do. I've only got about 12 to 15 swimmers within my group. So it's a lot different to footy teams that are a lot bigger and everything else, but I've got about 12 or 15 people to work with. And whether there's someone who's trying to get an Olympic medal or whether there's someone that's just trying to swim a PB, they're all important to me. You know, I feel that they've entrusted themselves with me and I feel responsible for the, you know, for the result that they achieve at the end of the season. Extraordinary. I love hearing about it. And clearly that's what you're able to do to form that. As you say, it's like that spiritual sort of connection with them, that human level. It's amazing, isn't it? They are the greatest athletes in the world, but at the end of the day, everyone's human. And and you, the fact that you're able to recognize that, I think obviously that's what sets you apart from the rest. Um, hey, let's talk about Tokyo. So uh, I, I read a, a quote, um, and I, I love this, in terms of what the Olympic Games are. It's trying to get a predictable outcome in an unpredictable environment they are your words i mean obviously tokyo the most unpredictable of all because you know it was on last year then it's off then this year you know, even up to the 11th hour it could have been called off but it wasn't um and i also read that when you told emma mckeon uh, that the games were off last year that she was you know uh, i think the quote was she was just un- uncontrollably upset and you can understand i mean she's going for gold everything's coming along and then suddenly there's the ultimate spanner in the works how were you and Emma able to sort of really reroute things and get it on track for, for what ended up being Tokyo 2020 this year? Well, I think you, know, you try and draw an experience. And Emma was at the last Olympics in Rio before Tokyo. And, uh, you know, she had, you know, probably a multitude of different feelings. You know, she swam well, she didn't swim that well. She swam a bit average in certain races. And I think, you know, the emotional roller coaster ride that's associated with the Olympics I think is a great kind of learning opportunity for people. I think she learned a lot of lessons in Rio that really helped her perform and perform so well in Tokyo. So I guess it's just remembering those things that happened and she was a lot more prepared uh, for what, for what was going to happen this time. Like it's, it's a very, very unpredictable environment. The Olympics, you know, we had to, we had a training camp in Cairns, it was supposed to be two weeks. It ended up being three weeks because we had to escape Brisbane with, with lockdowns coming on. So there was an extra week we had to deal with in Cairns. Not that it's a bad place, Cairns, but uh, an extra week there. When we flew into the airport, it's a nine-hour flight from Cairns through to Tokyo. We had to sit around the airport for four or five hours 
and wait for the result of a COVID test sitting around. Like there's a lot of distractions and things that you wouldn't normally experience in the Olympics. But I think the ones that dealt, you know, the people that were the most adaptable were the ones that were successful at the Olympics. And, you know, those things happen. Um, you know, there were buses that were late getting to the pool. We were waiting in line in the hot sun some days for an hour, an hour and a half waiting for buses. You know, we were all expecting everything to be on time. Like, you know, we associate with Japan things running like clockwork, but there were a couple of things there the first two or three days, namely with buses uh, that didn't go to plan, that, you know, the ones that were calm and and didn't get flustered were the ones that, that I think kept calm and, and kept themselves very measured, didn't allow things to get them upset. So I think having that flat line of emotion coming in is something that you need to be able to do. You know, those that got really upset and, and really put off their game by those things were the ones that perhaps didn't perform as well as they they quite should have. So I think, you know, you've got to be ready for those those unpredictable things that happen at meets like Olympics. I remember in Rio, it was, you know, it was a bit of a debacle with the things that were going wrong there. Air conditioning units falling off. Uh, lifts getting stuck on floors, hot water not working, cold water not working some days, uh, not being able to, to you know, flush things down the toilet. You had to do what you had to do and put it in a, a bucket. Then three days later, it was cleaned out of your room. Just all those things that can get in your road if you let them, uh, you know, mm. sort of get in the road. So um, I think having the experience of Rio, but you know, before definitely helped Emma in uh, Tokyo. So that's probably the best way that I can describe it. But I think, yeah. you know, you as a coach, you know, you're there talking them through these little problems that are going to happen and you're trying to prepare them for these little, uh, you know, things that are going to distract and get in the road in the lead up. So um, I think, you know, the more, the more well-equipped, the more calm you can stay in those situations, you know, just laughing about things going wrong. I think just something simple like that, um, you know, really helps get you through the hard times coming in. Interesting. Hey, what about at Tokyo? I mean, Australia's most successful ever team. I, I read also uh, Rowan Taylor, head coach, um, at the training camp earlier in the year, he split the team up into green versus gold and basically made the Aussies swim against themselves and obviously driving that competitive spirit. Can you give us uh, some insights into how this swim team became our greatest ever? I think it's just a combination of a few different things. Obviously, we've got some coaches that are doing a very good job at the moment. There's a good mix of older, more experienced coaches and some young developing coaches coming through. Uh, they've got great athletes in their program. Um, I think the national event camp, as you mentioned, in February was quite quite a turning point for us. We hadn't had a national event camp for a couple of years. And I think getting that Getting that initiative back together again was really good. It really brought everyone together, the coaches, the staff, the athletes. And I think Rowan had the idea on the Tuesday morning, unannounced to the team, we're all having breakfast in a room. Some of the coaches knew it was coming up, namely Peter Bishop and myself, who were the head coaches for the green team, and Vince Raleigh and Simon Cusack, who were the head coaches for the gold team, knew what was what was about to be said. But Rowan dragged everyone together and said, guys, we're going to set up a challenge for everyone this morning. We all don't know what we're doing, but this is what we're doing. We'll split the team up into two, green and gold. We've selected people for events. It's going to be a relay competition. So no individual racing. Uh -huh. it's, it's going to be in a relay format. 
and you're going to get up, you're going to be scoring points for your team. There's going to be no money involved. It's just purely and simply racing and you're racing for each other. Um, and with, you know, the bus is leaving in an hour's time. You're going to go up to your room, get your suits. You're going to go to the pool at Bond University and, uh, you know, you're going to get behind one another and you're going to try and win the meet. And I think just the spirit that that was done with, I think the coaches, the staff, and most importantly, the athletes really got behind it. Uh, they all represented and represented really hard, like Kyle Chalmers at the time. I, I can still remember had a problem with his shoulder and he was absolutely livid that he wasn't able to swim because that's that's the environment that Kyle thrives in, you know, being mm. in that relay and swimming for the team, not just swimming for yourself. And all the athletes that weren't able to race because they were injured were, were, were filthy because they weren't allowed to compete. <laughs> I saw Kyle on the side of the pool trying to convince his coach, Peter Bishop, to put him in. <laughs> But of course, he wasn't allowed to swim. So I think that day was just—it was just awesome. And you know, just watching the way that the kids came together, I think the leadership group did a really good job of pulling everyone together. There were team chants and team cheers, and there was fireworks going off, and and there were people performing really, really well. They were getting in, they were backing up from from one race to the other, which is something I know that Emma had to do at uh, Tokyo. So I was really pleased that she got the opportunity to race i think she might have raced about five or six times over a uh, two-hour window so i think you know practicing that which is what she had to do when she got to tokyo was really good for her from from a personal point of view well i was just going to touch on that like the fact that with him you know 50 uh, gold you know individual and then straight out of the pool into the other pool you know get straight back in uh, to do the medley and win gold there i mean Obviously, that helps the fact that she'd done it before in that training camp, that practice of it. Um, what, what sort of preparation do you have for that? What are the last words you're telling Emma McKeon before she goes out to win a 50 and then has to turn around and go into the medley and, and the, the girls won gold there too? Well, I think this was all probably done over the last five years leading in. Like after Rio, we knew that Emma potentially would have had a very heavy schedule. So I think you know the way you set up your training week when you position main sets and main sessions and that sort of thing. And there's a fairly heavy, heavy emphasis in the program that I run where swimmers are trained to back up from, from one session to the other. So I think it wasn't just done in the couple of months before it was done over the five years, you know, after Rio, there was a fairly heavy emphasis on getting our swimmers and most, most, uh, you know, likely Emma, Mm. with the training that she did, setting up in the training pool to be able to do that. So, um, you know, she goes from a pretty solid session Monday night. She backs up with a solid one Tuesday morning. Tuesday night's very hard again. Wednesday in our week is a bit of a recovery session. Then Thursday they're working hard again, both in the morning and the afternoon. Friday's a bit of an easy one. Then Saturday's a hard one to finish off the week. So training's one thing, but having access to athletes to be able to put under that sort of pressure at competitions is another thing. But I, I always say there's no better form of, of um, you know, racing than, uh, you know, racing. So, you know, being exposed to that high pressure racing back to back, one race after the other is, is just a good way of practicing what she wants to do when she got to the Olympic Games. In terms of the tech, the, the super suit era was was a was a, a you know big time in, in swimming. The technology, the role that it plays now. I mean, watching the Olympic coverage, it was incredible. You know, the assessment, the analysis of stroke rate and everything as a viewer, you could see. How much do you incorporate that into your coaching? The the analysis, the data, the the sports science. 
Yeah, it's something you're using every week. Um, you know, we have uh, sports scientists that are coming to the pool and giving us a hand with what we're doing. We've got a biomechanist who comes in and, uh, you know, films, does underwater footage of stroke technique, stroke analysis. We've got a girl comes in, uh, Jess Caronis, that does a lot of work on um, skill acquisition, so on starts, turns and finishes, but also on technique. Uh, we have a diet nutrition expert coming in every couple of weeks, um, you know, talking about, uh, you know, what they need to be eating for recovery and those sorts of things. So that we're, we're, we're incorporating sports science into the program on a weekly basis. So it's something, I guess, the longer I've coached, I think, I think you said at the start, 33 years, that's about right. I think there was just about zero sports science in year one that I coached. But as the coaching has gone on over the years, I guess there's been more of a more of a integration of sports science into what you're doing. And I think in my mind, the two really big things, I think it's the video analysis, looking at the stroke, uh, I think is really, really important. And the skills have become more and more important for the starts and turns. So, you know, how we do the dolphin kick underneath the water, you know, there's big advantages in that. So it's something that we use on a weekly basis in the, in the program that I'm running at Griffith University. Well, I was just going to say, eight hey, last question for that program of yours at Griffith University on the Gold Coast, your school of excellence. Have you got a name for us for, that we don't, that in the general public, we probably don't know of, but one of your swimmers there who you reckon could take things by storm, maybe in Paris. Have you got someone for it us to keep our eyes on? Jeez, you put me under the pump here. Okay. <laughs> um, I think, you know, there's a number of kids that are, you know, that are coming through There's There's, you know, one boy that's not in the program yet, he's been training in Melbourne. His name's Bowen Goff, and he's been training. He was with Wayne Laws for a number of years. He's a 200 flyer. He narrowly missed the team, but uh, I think, you know, he's going to be one. I'm, I'm looking forward in the 200 fly with him to, uh, you know, seeing what he can get down to in that. I think he's just really good technically. He's got a great attitude. He's been working really well. His coach, Wayne Laws, is looking at moving out of coaching. Uh, Wayne placed three swimmers on the team, um, you know, for the Olympics. He, he did a great job, but he's looking at sort of stepping back. So Bowen is looking at coming up training with us. And I think he's someone that can can get himself on that team if he keeps, you know, working and working really hard. There's another number of other athletes within the program. You know, we've got Lani Pallister in there. She's just missed the team. She's had a few health challenges. Um, you know, she's certainly one for the future as well. But, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping Cody Simpson can, uh, you know, step up. He's, he's really uh, had about 10 or 11 years out of the pool. He's been doing a little bit on his own. But being overseas, here it goes again. That'll be Cody calling just uh, seeing what you're saying about him. Yeah, tell us about Cody and that journey. I mean, that in itself is a, an incredible, incredible thing you, you're pursuing. Yeah, well, I think, you know, he... Um, you know, he was swimming at a very good level uh, up until the point when he stopped swimming and went over to the US to chase that musical dream that he had. And um, he spent probably the last 10 or 11 years chasing that. But um, he's kept himself very physically fit over there. He was always in the pool doing a little bit on his own, not with squads or anything. Um, just prior to him coming out, he hooked up with Brett Hawke and he was doing a little bit with Brett Hawke for maybe 12 months and got himself, you know, to a very good level. He started competing and, you know, for a hundred butterfly, he was 55, 54. He got down to 53 before he came out to Australia. He was only here for, for maybe eight weeks and made the Olympic 
final, a trials final, I should say. 52 8 for 100 mm-hmm. fly and 100 free went 50.2. Mm-hmm. So he's swimming at a level that's good, but you know, he's got to be better than that to make the team. He's got to drop two seconds in his 100 fly. So from 52 8 to 50.8, get himself in the 50 club for the 100 fly and the 100 freestyle. If he's going to be a chance of that four by one freestyle relay, he's got to be down in the 47. So he's still got a lot of improving to do, but you know, you can just see with him, he's just got that that edge. I was only talking to someone this morning about it. Like, you know, when we, when we train, he's one of those athletes, when we get up to do a series of efforts, he can always find that little bit when the pressure's on. And I think they're, mm-hmm. they're the athletes that invariably make teams and they're, they're, they're the athletes that get on podiums. You know, they're swimming at a great level, but they're able to lift when that pressure is at its highest. So he's still got a long way to go. He's still got a lot of mountain, a big part of the mountain to climb. But I think just in terms of his attitude, his commitment, his dedication to the sport, he's, he's up there with one of the best people in the group that we have at the moment. So uh, I'm very hopeful that, you know, Cody can keep, uh, you know, keep shaving tenths of a second off what he does and, uh, you know, give that team next year for Worlds and Commonwealth Games a bit of a shape. But his ultimate goal is obviously Paris. It's still two and a half years away, so he's still got time to keep those times coming down. We'll just have to wait to see how he improves. I guess that'll be the, the a testament to what he's doing. Well, he couldn't be in better hands than you. You are the super coach of swimming. I appreciate your time so much. Michael Bolt, thank you. No problem, Lockie. Happy to help out. Up next on the show, we've got the world leader in sports tech fan engagement, Nathan Rothschild from the GTG Network. Uh, It's my great pleasure now to welcome a man who is the Don Bradman of Sports Tech Fan Engagement, the co-founder of GTG Network, working with some of the biggest brands on the face of the planet, the LA Lakers, the Cleveland Cavaliers, the NFL, Caesars Entertainment, if you don't mind, we're thinking Vegas a little bit there, Uh, Ladbrokes in the UK, across the world game, and in Australia with the AFL and NRL offerings of sports bet. Nathan Rothschild, welcome to the show. Lockie, thank you very much for having me. And that's quite the intro. Uh, I hope a few more people give me intros like that. That's the best I've ever had, so thank you. Well, mate, when, when you're dealing with subject matter like yours, the intros write themselves because you are gold standard. I mean, to put it in perspective for people, the LA Lakers are worth $5 billion US dollars. So when they're looking and shopping around for who they want to work with, Perfection is the minimum requirement. They've gone to all four corners of the globe and they picked you, Nath, with GTG Network. Uh, Nath, I want to get to a a bit of the background of the story. Can you give us the the genesis of Genius, please? Yes, certainly. So um, we started out in 2012. We were giving out a little bit of content on Facebook and sort of just playing around a little bit. And then um, we start to get a little bit more serious commercially and... One thing that we were getting from our fans on Facebook, our likes, um, was the request for sports data. Now, you know, as you know, I'm the uh, penultimate, you know, ultimate, I should say, uh, maths geek. And um, when, you know, customers come looking for sports data, this is something that I really understand, particularly in the sports betting space. So we're talking about space that both I really, I'm really passionate about and I understand really well, along with my co-founders, um, we went out and we researched the market and we felt there was a really good opportunity to um, build a sports data platform with 
you know, a focus on sports betting, but really focus on sports engagement. And something that we've discovered the more that we've got on this journey that sports data and sports statistics, it's really central to the way many fans engage with sport. And just look at the way broadcasters changed over the last 10 years, that all the stats that come through via that, and just in general media, all the talk is show me the data, show me the stats, show me the evidence. So uh, we went out, we uh, raised funding, um, built this uh, sports data platform called iSport Genius, really 2014 and 2015. Did our first major deal with Labrador actually here in Australia. Um, late 2015, launched the start of 2016. And we've really been off to the races, pardon the pun, you know, ever since then. Um, you know, that, that first client is always the hardest and we're sort of very fortunate um, to secure that deal um, with a bloke named Dean Shannon, who's currently the CEO of uh, Ladbrokes Australia. And, you know, and since then, it's been, you know, a, an Aussie sports tech startup that has really taken it to the world. Um, you know, the business has expanded significantly, both in terms of headcount, in terms of, you know, tech capability, our product suite that we've got on and we build tipping games across um, really anything that can be tipped on, whether it's, uh, you know, who's going to win, you know, the AFL grand final, who's going to score the first three-pointer in, you know, a game of the NBA, how many hot dogs will be eaten at the next hot dog eating world championship, which is, I actually believe is named after me being Nathan's uh, hot dogs. So, um, but really, I mean, there's been real scale that we've been able to generate from the technology that we've invested in. And that's allowed us to, you know, and the names that, you know, you've, uh, read out either that we work with previously or we have in the past. Um, you know, they're the biggest names in you know sports and entertainment. And it's been a lot of fun. Uh, it's been a lot of fun traveling the world that prior to COVID, I was spending a heap of time outside of the country um, and just showing off all the different technology. You know, we also build arcade games, which I never would have thought. So, you know, from the fairly rudimentary, you know, swipe basketball into a hoop and collect points to stuff that's a little bit more nuanced and detailed and, so the customization that we can afford our clients has been a big part of, you know, our success and um, being able to leverage, you know, that headcount, sort of some quite significant technical resources inside the business. Um, yeah, it's been a lot of fun, you know, presenting. We're very biased, but we're very unashamed. We're not that humble. You know, best in class technology, and that's absolutely how we uh, present ourselves, and we have a lot of fun doing it. So. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, not a lot of travel recently. Most exciting trip in the last 18 months has been an overnight trip to Canberra. We're, with all due respect to Canberra, where you've sort of been having meetings inside Caesars Palace with Caesars, and then you're off to, you know, Canberra. Probably not quite the same level of excitement, but yes, look, Canberra is our capital and a, a lovely place. Yeah, different, different to Vegas. Hey, um, I mean, it is amazing what you do. I know you generate 20,000 pieces of data out of every game. It's just... It's amazing. Um, and your background, I mean, as you alluded to, and you probably were a bit humble in this sense, I mean, you actually are a maths genius. Uh, you know, your study of mathematics, um, data science at Melbourne University, one of the most prestigious in the world, your ability to, I suppose, combine that aptitude you have for numbers and along with your team, uh, Jared Hopping and, and Brett Cosgriff as well, your, your three partners in crime, um, the aptitude for numbers, but then your passion for sport Tell us how you craft these games, because as you say, you've created these pick'em games, the arcade games, that, you know, data is so dense, it's so complex. For you to be able to generate content and, and stuff that is so consumerable, you know, that the average fan just loves, how do you do it? How do you go about taking something so complex and making it something so fun and engaging? Yeah, no, that's a good question. There's a, 
a lot of work goes into it, a lot of work, a lot of lines of code, bit of secret sauce in there. Um, and that's why I'm glad you mentioned Jared and Brett because shout out to them that, you know, picking on the content side, it's Brett and Jared leads product delivery in a, a really exceptional way. Um, but what they are, they're sports fans themselves. So they really understand it's not speculating so much what a sports fan would want. Yeah, we've done a lot of market research as well and the ability to get very deep insights but make them very easy to understand that yeah, the attention span of a, and we'll use the sports betting sector here as an example, the attention span of a sports better is really quite limited <laughs> with all due respect. Um, so what's really important is you need to engage the sports better and then really a sports fan. They're just an example of the sports fan really quickly. So the ability to provide something that was genuinely insightful, um, but also very quick and very easy to what we say digest. It's really nuggets of information that, you know, within five seconds, you feel like you are smarter as a result of consuming that information. That is a huge part of what we do. That's really the basis of the business where we expanded from was um, having these massive amounts of content, but making sure that um, not just the content was easy to understand, but when we look at the clients, it's sort of a B to B to C business. Um, that they could make use of the content and we could make use of the content for them in the most effective way possible. Where do you head now? I, I, I read with interest a piece by Deloitte, uh, the hyper-quantified athlete, and it was a report they conducted about the growth and, and the, the real headway there is for data and the monetization of this data industry as it, as it grows and grows. As someone that's been on the inside, and really you were a trailblazer in this space, as you say, best part of 10 years ago, you're in the inner sanctum now at the highest level. Where do you see the future next? Yeah, let's give it the lead into 2032 at the Brisbane Olympics. Where do you see this going in terms of, as you say, the data, but then also the fan engagement aspects, content creation? What's the future look like? Yeah, a couple of really interesting um, points there. So in terms of where it's all going, and we look at the 2032 Olympics, that the at-venue experience for... Um, fans will be hugely different, you know, in 11 years' time to what it is now. And that's something we're sort of very active in. And, you know, we work very closely with the Cisco Sports and Entertainment practice in terms of really revolutionising what corporate suites look like at venue, you know, lounges, um, is the digital fan engagement experience. Uh, so there's a lot more you'll see coming there from us in the not-too-distant future without, without giving away too much. Um, and then in terms of, you know... Data will be a really big part of it, you know, and already the way that athletes prepare, data's become a really part of that. You know, a lot of, you know, top-end sports organisations around the world, they've got their chief data scientists and you look at the high-performance managers and the way that they look at the data. Um, I think a lot of them, they're consuming the data, but they're not really data guys by background. It's sort of part of their job is consuming and understanding data. I think you're going to see hardcore maths geeks having a more central role in not just the management of players, but probably the management of sports organisations. And, and that's, I think that's hardly, an, you know, uh, an outlandish um, comment. I think that's that's already happening. But, you know, from my background, you know, with a, a particular interest in the space, you will see more of that happening and a lot of it behind the scenes as well. Very interesting. Very interesting. And what about, like, in terms of, you know, that in-stadium experience you spoke of, what about uh, in augmented reality, virtual reality? How do you see your company working in, in that with regards, you know, the next decade or so of growth? Yeah, uh, we're certainly looking at that space, and it's a particularly interesting one. There is a funny story here. I was actually just recounting it last week that um, I speak at 
quite a few conferences. I'm quite lucky to do that. And there was a global uh, gambling regulators conference in Sydney back in 2016. And one of the things that was being presented was the use of AR and VR. Um, and as it relates to sports betting and potentially how that will impact the future of sports betting. And um, so we had someone come in actually demonstrating VR. And I hadn't sort of had any experience with sort of modern day VR well, ever. So I sort of asked, did anyone want to come up and trial this VR? I go, yeah, why not? There's about 500 sort of pretty serious people there. And then there's me who's, you know, slightly less serious. Um, and I was just very lucky to be a guest at this uh, conference. I, I did get to speak as well. And anyway, you sort of went up to the front, they put the headset on. And what the experience was is that they put a plank of wood down on the floor and you basically were going up in a lift and you would tightrope off the top of a skyscraper. And I thought, okay, in the lift, you th I go, this feels pretty real. And I go, and then I open up the lift and it's literally like you're at the top and you're peering out and your first step is you're just, you know, hundreds of metres up in the air. And let me tell you, um, as I sort of, I sort of refused to move, I was dangling, it's hard to explain the park, I was sort of dangling my foot out like into midair, like it would have been quite funny to look at. And I just scream out shit in front of like 500 guys, you know, 400 would probably send me to jail. Um, and it was, uh, it was amazing. Like that experience. And I remember I, um, very quickly took the heads. It was actually too real for me. It was an incredible experience. And as soon as I finished, um, that session of the conference, I was on the phone to Jared and Brett and going, I don't know when we're doing it, but VR is going to be part of something we do because of, I couldn't get over how real it had become um, compared to, you know, like really much earlier generations of it. So um, long story, but yes, there's a huge future. I mean, you see lots of great, um, you know, not just tech companies, but Aussie tech comes in the AR, VR space doing some really wonderful things and you'll see more of it. Again, that is, yeah, that's, it's not a fad. That space is real um, and you'll continue to see a lot more growth in that. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Uh, augmented virtual reality. Uh, you know, it's it's where the future of the mass market's going to be for that sports and entertainment space. It's um, it's amazing to see people like yourselves who'll be the ones that are, are shaping it. Hey, um, what about a bit of inspiration? I mean, it is just an extraordinary story, yours. Start up here in Australia, and you're out there now, strutting your stuff on the world stage and dominating. Um, for all people listening to this who are, you know, they want to get a bit of that, you know, they want to try and get themselves out there, whatever it is, whether we're talking in business, in you know, athletics, any endeavor in life, really, um, mate, for you to be able to walk in to a boardroom and you sit across the table from the LA Lakers, worth the best part of $5 billion US, sit in a boardroom at Caesars Entertainment in Las Vegas, sit in a boardroom with the NFL, the biggest league in the world. Can you tell us how are you able to get into that room, to own that space, to believe in yourself and your product strongly enough that you are able to prosecute your case and get the win? No, a pre another really good question, and it almost makes me miss, um, you know, being able to travel because, yeah, we've done a number of deals recently. They've all been over Zoom um, because, yeah, I can't do them in person. But, you know, I remember sort of the first time I went into Lakers HQ, you know, they've got their training facility um, down there, and sort of you walk through, and they I sort of got a little tour of, you know, their venue, their HQ, and, um, yeah, I could see some of the players were training from a distance, and, like, that's pretty exciting stuff. You know, as a guy who... Um, 
Yeah, was really into the NBA as a kid, so we're talking about the Jordan days. And really, once he retired, I sort of lost connection with the sport for a good 10 years, 15 years. And then it was really Jared and Brett as big NBA guys who got me back into it. And then actually a lot of the guys in Melbourne are really into the NBA, really into the North American sports. A number of them are really into the NFL as well. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of excitement that you go into a, a meeting like that with. But ultimately, it's having confidence in what you're presenting that... Um, you know, the preparation's been done that I legitimately believe that I've got the best products on earth that I'm presenting. Um, so no one's going to intimidate me away from presenting, you know, in any other fashion. So that's exactly how I presented that we have the best technology um, where, you know, we've got the client base to back it up. Um, and again, that's sort of part of the journey that, and I talked about how the first deal with Labrokes that, you know, to Labrokes and to Dean, we were sort of a bit of an unknown quantity, but He's a bit of a visionary. He understood the product. So that was important to him. And then all of a sudden you go to the next client and you're not an unknown quantity anymore. And then you grow and you grow and there's just more case studies and that client base that you can leverage off. So, um, yeah, by the time we're speaking to the Lakers, we already had a number of big name clients. So that helps. And you can talk to and demonstrate, um, you know, technology in action. And in a sense, I'm the lucky one that I'm not the one who builds a technology. That's why the technology is good. If I was building it, we'd have a real problem. Um, so I get to you know have a lot of fun with the hard work of a lot of others. You know, the product guys and Jared and his team, and you know the large team of engineers that we have. And I get to go in and um, you know demonstrate, you know what's you know I think technical excellency, but also um, I don't know if creative excellency is the best way to put. It, but there's a lot of really smart thinking in terms of the design of the product, um, and we'll push. Yeah, the boundaries a little bit further and you know I talked about you know essentially the three main pillars of what we do there's the stats and content engine there's the tipping prediction pick'em games all the same thing i just sort of travel around the world in the u.s they're pick'em games here they're tipping games in the uk they'll be something else um and then the arcade games and that's become a real strength and that's only been probably the last few years where in terms of points of difference and the excellence in technology is we've got all three divisions and being able to um Essentially, we can package all that into a single product, and that is what we originally did with the Lakers before moving on to, you know, um, actually working with the Detroit Pistons with a product called FanPick for the last uh, NBA season. Is you know, there's tipping game, there's a tipping component in there. Oh, we've got some of our facts and stats in there. Um, we've got the basketball arcade game in there. Um, so being able to leverage a, a really unique set of products helps massively, and that's where. The team, you know, just in Melbourne, all over the world that, you know, we've got um, team members, they make my job really easy. So why am I sort of, you know, confident going in? That's why I'm confident going in. That's why I can close the deal is because I'm legitimately presenting technology and products that are super appealing to, you know, the really big companies that I'm pitching to. Um, but I love it. I mean, and I certainly miss not being able to travel because what do I enjoy? You know, being able to um, work with and add a lot of value to um there's some of the biggest teams, leagues, um, sports betting organisations, media companies all over the world. There's a heap of fun in that, um, particularly when I talk about the you know humility, remembering where we came from, that we were an Aussie startup um, that for a while wasn't really doing a whole lot. Um, there was building and there was hoping and there was dreaming and there was you know praying and doing a lot more hard work. But then sort of when you get your breakthrough, actually have a little bit of momentum. Um, it means a lot more when you've struggled early on for it. Um, and we, it said it wasn't all gravy. Um, and it's never all gravy that, you know, it's not like every single thing we touch turns to gold. Uh, we don't pretend that's the case. Um, our 
hit rate is pretty good. Um, we're going quite well, but um, there's always room for improvement. And that's a message that's circulated, you know, internally of, you know, we're still fairly on in our journey. Um, we're just not as early on as obviously what we were a few years ago. Mate, it's just incredible. And um, for everyone, check them out at gtgnetwork.com. Uh, Nath, you know, you are a world leader in this space. You're a great ambassador for Australia. You are a poster person for what Australians can do on the world stage, particularly in this industry. It's the new world economics, and you're leading the way for us. So, Nath, I love having you on the show, and I appreciate your time very much. No, thank you very much for having having me. Uh, what a ripper bloke. Uh, up next on the show, Hayley McAdam. You're listening to Sports Cutting Edge for ASTN, the Australian Sports Technologies Network. Uh, it is my absolute uh, privilege now to welcome to the show from 3KND Indigenous Radio, Hayley McAdam. Hayley, welcome to the show. Oh, hello. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Oh, look, I am just stoked to have you on. Uh, now, 3KND, one of Australia's Indigenous radio stations. If you're in Melbourne listening on 1503 AM, of course, digital radio and 3KND.org.au, you are one of the superstars of the on-air lineup. But uh, every Tuesday between 11 and 12, on track with Hayley McAdam, a, a real youth focus uh, to your show, some great journalism. And then... Friday night, 10 till midnight, turn up with Hayley McAdam, with Hayley Mack. Um, tell us how much you love doing the radio and uh, what do you talk about on the Tuesday and what sort of music do you play on the Friday? Yeah, well, um, I absolutely love, you know, working with uh, 3KND, a community radio station and the only Indigenous radio station here in Victoria. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, I have two programs. So On Track is more so of a project. So that's what, um, that's what I'm employed under. And it basically outlines the impacts of COVID. So I talk about a broad um wide range of topics you know mainly focusing on mental health and um how the pandemic as lockdown has affected um people you know young people students um and families so yeah it's very important um yeah some of the stuff that i talk about is quite you know serious and um yeah but very important um to let our listeners know and then turns up fridays that's a bit more fun uh, more laid back uh yeah a bit more crazy so that's kind of um more of a volunteer job and yeah i just play pretty much up upcoming indigenous artists so a lot of new ind indigenous artists and i just found out recently that we've yeah that i've got one of the highest uh, ratings for that program turns up um yeah on 3k and radio so which is pretty cool so i interview mainly music artists and yeah i kind of play a party mix of like hip-hop r&b all of that so yeah they're very two different um shows but i i love doing them both well, congratulations on the rating success. I mean, that is just brilliant. You must be stoked. And that's incredible. It shows your versatility to be able to do sort of that real, you know, hard-hitting journalism, really getting into, as you say, youth and health. But then you can crank it up and set the party anthem alight on a Friday night. I mean, that's uh, that's pretty cool. Um, now, in terms of you are a, a, a Larrakia lady 
and Arunda lady. Now, can you help me? I'm going to, I want to be a bit more uh, better with my pronunciation. Can you help me with uh, my pronunciation for Arunda and uh, Larakia, please? Yes. Um, so uh, you might know it or people out there might know it as Larakia and uh, Arunda. However, it is pronounced Larakia and then Arunda. So both of those um, is the role of the R's. You've yeah. got to make sure you roll those R's. So yeah, um, Latakia is Darwin, Northern Territory, and Aranda is Alice Springs. Yeah, all right, Aranda. I'm gonna I'm gonna practice. Um, oh, just wonderful. And tell me, how much pride do you have uh, in your culture? Oh, look, it's um, it's something that I'm extremely privileged in and very lucky that you know of being who I am, and it's something that I pride myself in. It's a lifeline and a lot of people don't really realize how much of a difference that connection to culture, to our people, to our ancestors, to the land, to the animals, um, what a difference that makes to um, me mentally, you know, spiritually, all of that. It keeps me strong and as I mentioned, it's like, it's basically a lifeline to me. Yeah, I, I love it. I, I love it. It's... um. It's an incredible thing and uh, a very special part of the world, the Northern Territory, isn't it? It's just magic. It is a magic place. Um, hey, now, speaking of magic, your dad, Gilbert McAdam, one of the most magnificent talents in the history of Australian rules football. Uh, he had 111 games in the AFL uh, with Brizzy and the Saints, but then also in the Waffle and the Sandfall. And in 1989, playing with Central Districts, became the first Indigenous player to win the McGarry Medal, the equivalent of the Brownlow Medal. Um, and I think, and in recent time, I mean, we've all fallen in love with your dad doing the commentary and his media work. Uh, what was it like growing up with a superstar dad? And tell us about your love of sport. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I very much grew up, you know, watching Dad on TV and, and being involved in that kind of TV scene um, and sports. I love sports. Um, all of my siblings, we all love sports. Um, that's something that, you know, probably got passed down from Dad. Mm. Um, but, yeah, no, it's I've, I've had a, you know, it's been a... I've been very lucky to grow up in that environment of TV, media, and also, so I've got my dad who's obviously played AFL and um, works on television, but then my mum as well. So she uh, was a musician. And so I grew up, um, yeah, with TV, but also in music. And um, I've been lucky enough to, you know, be on stage and sing and, and be a part of that as well. So... Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. Well, that's incredible. Hey, speaking of your singing, a good friend of ours, G-Man, uh, Jerry Trati Lyons, who uh, is running the show there at 3KD, is a great, great Alice Springs man, and he's doing amazing things at 3KD. He said that you have got the most majestic voice. So, yeah, <laughs> how can we actually get in touch with a bit of your music? You know, what can we do, connect with you on whether it's Insta or what have you? Yeah, well, um, I have yet to kind of um, be out there and, you know, um, expose any music or anything. I am working on it. But, yeah, no, mm. if you do want to um, check me out on Insta, it's Hayley underscore McAdam. 
So I do plan, I don't have it yet, but I do plan on uploading some videos and yeah, some jam sessions um, in the nice. future. For Oh, nice. Well, we're going to keep a track because you're going to be a regular here on the show and we're totally wrapped with that. We'll keep a track of your music journey, your sport and the whole thing. Um, Hayley McAdam from 3KND, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you very much for reaching out and having me on. Uh, great stuff. Uh, that's Hayley McAdam there from 3KND Indigenous Radio. Uh, you can check him out at 3KND.org.au on digital radio, and if you're in Melbourne on 15.03 a.m., uh, G-Man and the whole crew there uh, with Hayley Mack do just a magnificent job. Uh, well, that wraps us up for show one of Sports Cutting Edge. Thanks so much for your company. Uh, make sure you check out ASTN at astn.com.au, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and right here, this time next week, we'll be back for another edition of Sports Cutting Edge. You've been listening to Sports Cutting Edge for the Australian Sports Technologies Network. For more, jump online at astn.com.au.